simple words and uh, seems like a simple command and yet we uh, struggle with that daily. And so we confess that this morning as we enter into this time of, um, or we enter into your text and we seek to be formed by it, shaped by it. May we receive your truth with softened hearts that indeed we might trust and obey the imperatives of this text, the imperatives of Christ as we seek to follow him and to glorify him with every aspect of our lives. So help us, Lord, again, to trust and obey you and know that you are good, that you are trustworthy, that you are true, and that the road of discipleship, though it may be hard, it is totally worth it because you are, you are good and you are God. So we invite you into this time, Holy Spirit, to be our teacher, to give us wisdom and clarity as we discern what you are saying to us through this text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, let me take a poll real quick. You guys know about the words extrovert and introvert, right? Okay, raise your hand if you think I am an introvert. Hey. Okay, raise your hand. Put your hands down. Raise your hand if you think I'm an extrovert. I just want to take note of this. Okay, interesting. Uh, who knows the answer for sure? Like, okay, uh, Daniel He, what am I? Yeah, I'm an introvert. <laughs> okay, I am a super introvert. Some of you guys can tell. But I think a lot of people can't tell because I seem to talk a lot. Uh, I used to be a teacher, right? And that's what I did all day. I talked. Use my voice to teach. Uh, that's what they pay me to do, right? To talk. <laughs> so, and I was, you know, really interactive with people and students and teachers and whatever, right? And so people, if I asked them that, they would guess, oh, you're an extrovert. Uh, but there's a, there's a misconception, there's a misconception, I think, that leads them to say that, is that they, people tend to think that extroverts like people and introverts don't like people, you know? Like, oh, just, introverts are very shy and they're just kind of to themselves all the time. That's not necessarily true, right? You can be an introvert and like people and like being around people. The difference is, if, if you're really into this stuff and you study it, the difference is, as you'll learn, is, is that introverts, they give off energy when they're around people in social settings, right? When you go to a party or a big social gathering, you, you might enjoy it, but you're losing energy. You know, it's just coming out of you. You're expending it, you're giving it to other people in your social, when you're spending your social capital, okay? And so when you spend it all at a social gathering, you need a time to go back and just re-energize. And we re-energize by being alone. We re-energize by reading a book and just not being bothered by people. Does that make sense? Whereas extroverts, they tend to gain energy when they're in social settings. Right? Raise your hand if you gain energy in social settings. You're like, oh, you know, you're really hyped up when you're at a party and stuff. Raise your hand. Don't be shy. Yeah, Angela? Yeah, you're definitely an extrovert, I can tell. Uh, now, I'm not saying extroverts can't get tired at social gatherings, but I think in general, they, they gain energy by being around people, and then introverts kind of give it off, and so they need to recharge, okay? They need to recharge by being by themselves. And at the beginning of this story, that's what's happening, right? You have the disciples feeling the same way here in our passage. At the very first movement and beginning of this story, we have introduced to us by Mark a problem, okay? If you're following your outline, I'm going to outline this story in three, with three P words. The first word is problem. This, 
This marks the first section of the story. This, there are problems. In fact, two problems. Two problems. The passage before this one, I didn't preach on it, but basically why they're so tired right now is because they just got finished going throughout all the Galilean villages proclaiming the kingdom of God. All right? If you remember the story, uh, Jesus sent them out two by two to preach the kingdom and heal the sick uh, in the, the villages of Galilee. Okay? This was after Jesus went to Nazareth. Okay? And then after that, he went to the villages and he told them to go out. So they are an extension of Jesus' ministry. Right? They're preaching the kingdom and they're healing and everything. And, uh, and Jesus says, okay, don't take anything with you. Remember the story? Just take, like, you know, what was it, a bag? And don't take money, though. Wait, wait, sorry. They weren't even allowed to take bags. No food, no money, no bag. They were just supposed to pack just like one tunic. And the, the, the idea there is, if you have a second tunic, that's usually for the, the cold nights. But if you only pack one tunic, then you have to depend on the hospitality of those around you, okay? So, so they had to go from place to place and depend on the hospitality of people and depend on, ultimately, God's provision for them. So they're exhausted, right? This, these are, this must have been days, weeks, where they're out and about with nothing and depending on the hospitality of people and they're preaching and doing uh, Jesus' ministry. And so now there, we get to verse 34 in our text. Oh, sorry, verse 30 in our text. And the, let's read it right here if you have your Bibles out. The, the apostles returned to Jesus. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Okay, so they're kind of like debriefing together. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. So at this point, presumably these are the people that heard the message of Jesus and they believe it. And now they're following the disciples. Like, okay, what should we do now? And they're following these disciples. And it says they were coming and going. So it's like group after group are just coming to see them and wants to know more about this kingdom and maybe this, perhaps even this Jesus. And so they're tired. There's no time to rest whatsoever. And that's why, not surprisingly, verse 32, we see that... Um, they went away in a boat to be by themselves. Now, the word here, it says desolate place. Another word for this is wilderness. In fact, maybe the, the plain literal translation is wilderness because the Greek word is used here is the same word used to translate the Hebrew word for wilderness in the Old Testament. Okay, We talked about this before, you may have forgot, but the, at that time, they have... A, they had a Greek translation of the Old Testament, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So we can gain some insight on the biblical authors as they use certain words that were used to translate the Old Testament in Hebrew. The Old Testament that was written in Hebrew. Okay, so wilderness is the, the word used there. Now, why is that so important, that, they, that Mark's using the word wilderness? And he's telling them, Jesus is telling them to rest in this wilderness. Because, well, I'll get to that in a second, but let me just briefly mention that if you recall the wilderness wandering of the people of Israel, uh, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and then finally they entered God's rest, right? Can you imagine 40 years of wandering and getting lost in the wilderness and then finally entering God's rest? I'll talk a little bit more about wilderness in a second, but I just first want to get that in your head by illustrating a point here 
about finding rest in the wilderness. Okay, this came to my mind when I was thinking about wilderness and rest because at the youth retreat, and I, I asked, I think I asked Isabel if I could use this story. She's, she didn't mind. At the youth retreat, these kids got lost in the wilderness. And they really put me at unrest, okay? Apparently, it wasn't 40 years, but it was more like 40 minutes or more, maybe. And they realized they were lost. And so they texted someone back at camp and they said, we're lost. We can't find the trail. And I was in a panic. I was thinking through my head, okay, what am I going to do if they're lost for hours? What happens when night falls? Like, at what point am I going to call a search party? Like, 911, you know, like, I was just thinking about all these things. And, like, they don't even know that they're lost. They're just, like, taking a nice selfie and everything. <laughs> this was, I think Isabel said, this is when they thought they found the trail again. And so they, they took a picture. And then uh, they realized they were still lost. Anyway. <laughs> thankfully, thankfully, using some common sense, was it? And maybe some, some guys that helped and yelled and screamed. They found their way back home. And... You could say that they were, they, they finally rested and had some relief, and so did I when they came back to the camp while being lost in the wilderness. You see, being lost in the wilderness and then finding rest in the wilderness is a common human experience. Like that feeling of relief is a common human experience, and especially when it's the wilderness, right? I have another wilderness story, but I'm not going to waste time telling it. Maybe I'll tell it for another sermon. But I had an experience very similar where I finally found rest coming back to civilization, and it was just an awesome feeling. Uh, This is a common experience, and that's why in the Old Testament, the theme, like I said, I'm going to come back to this wilderness theme. It, It was a recurring theme in the Old Testament, that God would give rest to his people in the wilderness, just as they were lost in the wilderness in the days of the first exodus. Right? And so, so it became a theme through the prophets where God says, I, I promise you there will be a future rest in the second exodus, at the time when I free you from um, what is really creating a wilderness environment for you. Now, Israel thought it was going to be the exile, but it, it, apparently it was something more future than that. There was going to be a rest for God's people while they're in the wilderness, and so what Jesus is doing here, by the way, let's go back to our text. Oh, let me give you an example in Jeremiah. Uh, At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. Okay, so again, the wilderness rest theme, I'm just showing you, it just appears together all the time. And Jeremiah is one example. What is happening in this passage in Mark is that when Jesus says, okay, I'm going to give rest to my disciples in the wilderness, and these crowds are coming to the disciples also in the wilderness who need rest, Mark is painting a picture here to say that Jesus is the leader of the new, the second exodus. He's the leader of the second exodus who is going to bring Israel out of the wilderness and to give them rest. So these words are not insignificant, okay? When he talks about, let's go back, when he talks about the, a desolate place and, and come, out to a desolate, come out to this wilderness area and rest. There's an intentionality there. He's saying, I am the one who will give 
rest to God's people. I'm the one that the prophet spoke about. Does that make sense? Now, we see another problem here. Not just the, the disciples needing rest, that's the problem number one. Problem number two is what we see in the next few verses. Verse 33, now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Okay, so what's, the picture of this painting here is that the, the disciples are on the boat, they're going to this place on the other side and the crowds see the boat, they see Jesus and the disciples and they're like, oh, let's, let's, beat, them to, let's beat them there. You know, so they just run along the coast, they go to the other side and they meet them on the other side where they're gonna rest. Apparently they're supposed to rest over there, but when they land on shore, uh, they get met by the crowd that followed them. Verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. This is Jesus. Jesus saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began, he began to teach to them many things. So now we have two problems intersecting and merging together. Number one, the need for rest but also secondly, we have sheep without a shepherd. Two problems, the need for rest and the need for a shepherd. Now this imagery of sheep without a shepherd appears multiple times in the Old Testament as well. I'll show you two places just really briefly. For example, in Numbers, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. What's happening here is Moses is about to die and he wants God to appoint another leader so that they, they're not without a shepherd. Okay? And so the Lord does what? The Lord says, okay, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and you lay your hand on him, okay? So as Moses dies, Joshua is the next in command. He's the new shepherd who takes Israel to the promised land. You remember the story? Now, it's very significant, I think, that his name is Joshua. You know what Jesus' name means? Jesus' name, yeah, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Joshua, okay? So there's a lot of parallelism here. Just as Joshua became the shepherd over the sheep after Moses, so Jesus is the, the shepherd of the sheep over the, the new Israel, the Israel of the second exodus. Another passage, Ezekiel 34. Here's how the sheep shepherd imagery shows up here. Okay, the context of Ezekiel 34 is that uh, God, God is accusing the false shepherds and false leaders of Israel for taking advantage of the, she, the sheep, okay? He, he's, he's angry at the, Israel, uh, the leaders of Israel for not doing their job. They're, they're bad shepherds. And so now he says this in response to that. He says, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land and I will feed them. What's the, what's the repetition here? I will, I will. God is saying that he will be the real shepherd. He will, he will do what they cannot do, what they couldn't do, what they failed to do. Look at verse 15. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. 
I, will, I myself will make them lie down, also known as rest. I will make them rest. Okay? And then at the same time, a few verses later in the same chapter, he says this, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. What that means is the, the king that comes from David's line. And he shall feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David shall be prince among them. So we have these two images where God says, I will be the shepherd. And then in the same breath, he says, and I will appoint a shepherd. I will be shepherd, and then my king will be shepherd. And so the, the idea is that God will shepherd his people through the work of his appointed, chosen king, Messiah. And so when, when Mark uses this language of sheep without a shepherd, you have the imagery of rest in the wilderness that God's going to give, but you also have this imagery of a king who becomes the great shepherd the king appointed by God to be the great shepherd in the wilderness. Okay, so you have a lot of stuff going on here, and I don't want you to miss it, right? In just the first few verses, this story is often known just as, you know, you memorize that he fed 5,000 people, he multiplied bread and multiplied fish and all that stuff. But if, if we read too fast, we're missing what Mark is doing by telling the story in this way, right? This is why we need to um, read Scripture intentionally and carefully, slow down, digest it, and, um, and figure out what the author's trying to say rather than just doing this own, you know, this reader-centric type of reading of Scripture where we just read it and we put our own meaning into it. We try to get what the author is trying to say. And so you have that, so that's the backdrop of the story. Okay? I just wanted to give you that background of the story. With, within that framework, then we try to interpret what, what Mark is doing here by telling the story of the feeding of the 5,000, okay? That framework that Jesus the King is the shepherd who will give rest to his people in the wilderness. So those are the two problems. The disciples need rest and the people need a shepherd. The disciples need rest and the people need a shepherd. And so let's pick this up right at verse 34 as we go into the story. Second half of 34. Do I have it up here? Yeah. He began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside, countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat so that they can buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it, give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them to all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the, to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. And so we, we've already seen there's two problems, the disciples needing rest and the crowds needing a shepherd. But you notice how Jesus invites another problem? He, uh, he invites the problem by beginning to teach them. Look at verse 34b, right? The second half of 34. He began to teach them many things. Jesus is basically inviting them to come 
Even though he just told the disciples, we're going to go over there and we're going to rest. And here he sees the crowds and he says, okay, come, let me teach you. I could just imagine the, uh, just maybe what the disciples were feeling when Jesus did this as they were looking forward to their rest, but now having the crowd continue to follow them. If that wasn't enough, it was getting late and now they're stuck with all these hungry people, right? Yeah, so the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, why don't you just send them away so they can get themselves something to eat? But Jesus says, no, you feed them. And so the second, I think the second movement of this story, the second P word that I'm going to use to describe it is perplexity, okay? Jesus is going to leave them really confused. I mean, you can just sense the, uh, the disrespect in the disciples' words here and the frustration I mean, this is the wilderness. They're in the middle of nowhere, and the hour is late. But Jesus, instead of sending them away, he is inviting them in. I mean, look at verse 37. They say, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? They're being sarcastic, okay? And 200 denarii is something like, like a whole year's worth of wages for a person. So this is a lot of money, and clearly it's not money that they have nor are they willing to use. They probably didn't have it, though. Um, And so Jesus was demanding of them something that was literally impossible to fulfill. Jesus was demanding something literally impossible to fulfill. You know, there's there's a phrase that goes something like this. Jesus won't give you more than you can handle. You guys hear that phrase a lot? There's some truth to that. I understand that the intent of that but I don't know if that's necessarily true. Sometimes God will give you more than you can handle. You know why? Because it'll teach you to depend on him. That's what we're gonna see in a little bit here. He's, he's demanding something that's impossible for them to fulfill. And so that's the, and so the, the disciples are, are inadequate here in a few ways. Number one, they're tired. Number two, they have no money or resources in and of themselves. And then number three, they're just straight up perplexed. They're confused. They don't know what to do. They're being asked to do what is impossible in their minds. Okay, so you have this, you have the problem that leads to perplexity. But of course, um, that's not the end of the story. The third P word that I think marks this story is provision. The perplexity or the problem and perplexity leads to the provision. Now, there's a few ways that I think Mark talks about Jesus being the provision here. Uh, the first aspect is that he is he provides by being the great shepherd. Did you guys notice that when we read it, verse 39? He commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Raise your hand if that stuck out to you when you first read it. Green grass. Okay. I mean, because sometimes these details just kind of like, we, we noticed it, we notice it, but we don't really, really notice it, right? Green grass. Why would Mark say green grass? What does that remind you of? Psalm what? Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. And what does the shepherd do? He makes me lie down in green pastures, Right? Green pastures, green grass. 
And so this, by mentioning this here, Mark is equating Jesus as the shepherd, the great shepherd. If you have nothing at all, but you have Jesus, then you have everything you need. Right, what was that equation? Like? It's like, I see it on t-shirts, like Jesus plus nothing equals everything, something like that. It's kind of cliche, it's kind of a little, little cheesy, but it's true, right? When you have nothing at all, but you have Jesus, what more, they, what more do you need? And that's, that's the point of Philippians 4.13, that famous verse where, where Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? The context of what Paul is, the, what, the context in which Paul is saying that is that he is in prison and he's lacking in everything and the church is worried about him and the church is writing to him but he's, he's assuring the church, hey, I've learned the secret of contentment. The secret of contentment is to know that I have Christ. And he is all I need. And so I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can endure all hardships because I know he is with me. And to die is gain. Right? And so that's, that's, that's the idea here is that Jesus as the shepherd is our provision. Let me see where I'm at here. And, and by the way, the, the green grass, you might think, oh, this is wilderness, how, how come there's green grass? It's not just dirt, okay? In the, in the springtime, the grass does grow up really fast, and then when the rains go away in, the, in like May-ish, it'll go back to, you know, kind of brownish again. But there is green grass over there, okay? It's not, it's not wilderness does not necessarily mean desert, dryness, all year round. So Jesus provides by being their shepherd. Secondly, Jesus' provision is... That's my daughter. <laughs> she wants to give the next point. I think I'll translate that baby talk. She says, Jesus works through his disciples. Jesus works through his disciples. That's how he provides, right? It's not like, like you can always expect God to just come down from the mountain and just like, you know, like provide through supernatural means all the time. If it is supernatural, like in this miracle, notice how it's always partnered, it's partnered with the work of the disciples. Look at verse 41. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. I think there's, there's a intentionality behind this to communicate something that Jesus is going to do the work through the disciples. I mean, Jesus could have been the one handing them out, or he could have multiplied it in a different way where it just appears in the groups, in the groups themselves, and there's no distribution, right? But here he's distributing it as, he's distributing it through the disciples by first doing the miracle within, uh, I don't know, a, a smaller group where the disciples can, can witness it, okay? So this, there's no indication here that the crowds kind of saw everything. There's, there's, all, all, there's all this indication that Jesus performed these miracles for his disciples to see. And then he used the disciples to distribute the bread and the fish. Now, does this sound familiar? Jesus accomplishes our salvation, the salvation of unqualified and inadequate people, but then he uses us, he qualifies us to go out and to be a dispenser of that grace, right? 
we're kind of like the disciples in the story where, where we can witness Jesus' work firsthand and then we become the dispenser of that grace. God uses us in his miraculous work. He doesn't do it apart from the agency of his people. Does that make sense? So this is the kingdom of God. What we see in Mark here, chapter 6, we see the kingdom of God breaking into human history. And, and those who recognize its arrival take part in the gracious work of that, of that kingdom. This is kind of like a, a royal banquet. I mean, this story comes right after, uh, what was it, I think King Herod's feast, you know, where he's like, it's a really like pagan feast and, he, and then he murders John the Baptist and everything. And then this story comes right after that, right? So this is like Jesus' feast. The picture we have here in the feeding of the 5,000 is the great banquet in heaven where Jesus becomes the provider of all his people, his sheep. He becomes their shepherd. And so as we take part in that work, trust that he will provide when we become the great shepherd's hands and feet to a world still waiting for the kingdom to arrive in its fullness. Now what gives us confidence that we can be hands and feet of Jesus until he comes again? Well, I think we can have confidence because of the third point here. And that is that he satisfies above and beyond. When we do his work, we, we trust that Jesus has sufficient power to satisfy the work that comes out. It satisfies the recipients above and beyond. That's, that's what we see in the story, right? Verse 42. They all ate and were satisfied. They all ate. That means Jesus' provision was complete. There's, it wasn't lacking in anything. 43. They took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. So there was a full basket of leftover for each, each disciple. So every disciple that went out and distributed the food, they had a lot left over. Okay? It was enough. It was abundant. Look at 40, uh, wait, 44. Oh, sorry, let me say one more thing about 42. They were satisfied. That when they ate, they were satisfied. Think of that word is like, you know, think of when you eat your favorite meal and you just, you're able to kick back. And you're like, oh, that was satisfying. You might feel bad because you have to work it off later, but you feel satisfied, you know? You're not hungry anymore. Um, in other words, Jesus' provision was abundant. It was abundant. And then there was leftovers. I mentioned that already. Then Mark says there were 5,000 men. Now, the word used here is specifically men. It's not people. In other words, he's counting just the men. The, it's probably a family unit that he's counting. So there are women and children probably present with the men. So it's not just 5,000 we're dealing with here, but a lot more than 5,000. He just fed a lot more than 5,000. What do we learn from this story? Well, let's recap the flow of the story. Jesus creates the problem, right? He knows they're tired, and yet he creates the problem by inviting the crowds to him by teaching them. He creates the problem. But secondly, what does that lead to? The disciples being perplexed and feeling inadequate, and they are inadequate, to solve the problem. But thirdly, Jesus shows his sufficiency through the disciples in solving the problem that he creates.
All the while, the disciples learn something about Jesus through obeying, despite their perplexity and lack of understanding. They learn something about him through this, that he is the great shepherd, he is the great provider, and, and that his compassion was met with power. Right? It wasn't just one or the other, but he has both. He had compassion on the crowd, and he addressed that with his power. So the main point in practical terms for us, I think, is this. Faithful obedience leads to greater understanding. Faithful obedience leads to greater understanding. Jesus calls us to trust and obey, especially when we find ourselves in the wilderness of our own perplexity, confusion, misunderstanding, and inadequacy. When I was, I think, a junior in college, uh, I remember one weekend, it was a Friday, I felt strongly that God was calling me to go and feed the homeless in downtown Sacramento. This was one Friday, I just really strongly felt that, that God was saying, go feed the homeless tomorrow on your Saturday in downtown Sacramento. And I remember I was working through that and I was like, okay, should I? I'm kind of tired, I got maybe a test to study for, I got things to do on my Saturday. And so I remember going to sleep that night, basically saying no. I'm not going to do it. I, I have too many things to do on Saturday. So I went to sleep. And I had a dream. And in my dream, I was wrestling with God about the question still. I was going back and forth with God about the question of going to Sacramento and feeding the homeless. And I remember in the dialogue with God, eventually I, uh, I agreed. Okay, I'll listen. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go feed the homeless in Sacramento, in my dream. I had that conversation, okay? And the next thing you know, I wake up, and it's like 12 noon, and I think by that time it was too late because I had something else to do on that Saturday. So I was like, oh no, I can't do it now. It's too late, I overslept. I was filled with regret, and I was crying out, God, please give me another chance. I, I, made, I made a mistake, I overslept. Please give me another chance. I, I felt so much regret. And the next thing you know, I woke up again. <laughs> Apparently, it was a dream in a dream. You know, have you seen Inception? Have you guys watched Inception? It's a great movie, but they play with the idea of dream inside a dream. I've had dreams inside dreams before, but I think this one was the most intense. The most intense dream inside a dream. I literally thought I woke up, it was so vivid. And I looked at my clock, and one of those, you know, it's not like a phone clock, like a little big digital clock, and it, was, it said like 12 noon or whatever. And but God gave me a second chance, quote unquote. And so when I woke up, I looked at the, I looked at the clock, and it was like eight o'clock or whatever. It's like, oh yeah, for plenty of time. Woo! God gave me. A, he answered my prayer in a prayer. He answered my prayer in a dream. I don't know how that works, but He gave me a second chance. So I got up immediately, got dressed, and I called a few people uh, that I was discipling at the moment. I called them and said, Hey, let's let's go. You guys want to go feed the homeless or something in Sacramento? They were like, Yeah, sure. They're really excited. My wife was one of them. She wasn't. We weren't dating at the time, but she was one of them. And we went to Safeway, grabbed uh, bread and ham and cheese and all the good stuff. Got some brown paper bags, we packed the bags. And then we just, I think four of us, we just drove up to downtown Sacramento. We, we were in Davis, okay, so about a 30 minute drive. Went to downtown Sacramento and we distributed food, we met a lot of homeless people, we prayed for them, we learned about them, we learned their stories. And at the end of it, I, I realized why God had called me to go because he taught me something about People. He taught me something about the homeless and, and the faith journey they're having. And basically, I just had a greater understanding of what it meant to just, just go, just listen. 
And so when I say this, I, I really mean it. Faithful obedience just leads to greater understanding. You don't need to have everything sorted out before you obey. That's one of the lies that Satan tells us. Right? Where, he, where you hear that in your head. Oh, I don't know enough. I don't need to go. I don't know enough. I, I'll wait till I get it all sorted out, until I get my ducks in order, then I'll obey. And I... You see, I, Satan doesn't care about information. He cares about application. And so I think that's a lie from the enemy where you just feel like you don't, you're not good enough. You don't know enough in order to listen. Greater uh, faithful obedience leads to greater understanding. We don't need to have all the answers before we obey. Had the disciples bailed on Jesus as soon as they judged his ideas unreasonable or dumb, then they, would have, they wouldn't have witnessed Jesus' power working through them as he multiplied that bread and that fish. It was their obedience. Although they were perplexed, they still listened. It was that obedience that led to greater understanding. Now, so my question to you would be, what is God calling you to do right now? And I know you all have something that's, you know, tugging at your heart, but you kind of just tucked it away and said, okay, I'll, I'll deal with that later, maybe when I graduate, or maybe in the summer, or, you know, you, we always give reasons. So what is God calling you to do right now, and how is he calling you into a, into a place where you think there is no way, there is no solution? But do you think that perhaps he might be calling you to obey? <laughs> so that he can reveal to you a greater level of understanding of who he, of who he is, an understanding of who he is, and of perhaps who you are. Who you are in the grand story of his kingdom breaking forth into human history, reaching its culmination when Jesus returns. What is your part in that story? And how can we obey, even though we might be confused about the situation that we're in, the wilderness that we're in, okay? Now, there's one last caution that I want to leave you with that I think Mark himself would caution us as we think about this. And it comes from the very next passage that follows this one. Very interesting passage. So let me read it real quick. And actually, let's play a little game. Close your Bibles. No cheating, okay? This is, notice, this is verse 45. So this comes right after our account. And there's going to be a, something interesting that happens here. So I'm going to give this candy bar to the person that can get this right. Hold on. I'm, I didn't even ask anything yet. She's like raising her hand. Okay, go ahead, Angela. What's the answer? <laughs> right, just hold on. She really wants her chocolate fix this morning. All right. 45. Immediately. So this is after the feeding. He made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. So he told his disciples to go first. They're on the boat. He's on land. He's praying. And then verse 48, he saw that they were making headway painfully. Because they're going against the wind. It was like a storm was kicking up. And then about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. All right, so he's walking, doing that you know, special power thing where he's walking on water. And then he meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. But they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, hey, take heart in his eye. Don't be afraid. Make sure your Bibles are closed. And he got into the boat with them 
and the wind ceased. Okay, so he, he was walking on water, they got scared, he got into the boat, the storm was calm, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand blank. Okay, give me the answer, give me what it says in the blank there, and you get this. They were utterly astounded when Jesus came in, for they did not understand what? Angela. How this happened. <laughs> yeah, so she says, how this happened. All right. You don't have to be verbatim. Just give me a general idea. Say who? Jesus what? By whose name? Huh? Sorry, I can't. They didn't understand Jesus. Oh, okay. Good answer. Good guess. Jonathan? But they don't understand what they saw. Okay. Keep going. Hmm? The flame of fire? Mm, okay. Okay, I'll limit you to one answer. So I gotta pick one of those, but I'm not sure that's it. Anyone else? Final, final answer. Anyone have the Jeopardy theme song? Okay. I, I might as well just offer a hundred bucks. I don't, I don't think anyone would have guessed this. Okay, they did not understand about the loaves. You were gonna say that? Now this is very, very strange. Okay, very strange because you wouldn't expect. You wouldn't expect them to be talking about the bread. Here's Jesus. They're just in a storm, and Jesus is walking in water, and he comes into their boat, and then the, the storm cease, and then all of a sudden they're like, they're really astounded, and then Mark says, because they didn't understand about the bread, the loaf. <laughs> What's going on here is Mark is saying they, they were startled and scared, and they were astounded because they didn't understand what... Jesus was revealing about himself through the feeding of the 5,000. They were so hung up on what just happened. Why did Jesus create that problem? Why did he make them confused? And then why did he like do that thing where he did and everyone was fed? Why did he do that? They were, they were, and it says, look, their hearts were hardened. They didn't get it. They didn't understand why Jesus did that to the point where even when they were in the boat, and Jesus just walked on water in front of them, and they were blind to it. Their hearts were hardened. Now, what is the caution for us? Why did Mark tell the story right after the feeding of the 5,000? What is the point here? I think that perhaps the question to the reader is this, is your heart hardened as well? Is, is Jesus just a miracle worker to you? Is he just someone who just works miracles, but you don't recognize, like, what does it point to? That the, the, who he is as the great shepherd. If you were in that crowd that was fed, would the only thing different about you be that now your belly is full? Or would you recognize whom you are now with? Who, who is right in front of you as the great shepherd, the king? May God grant us softened hearts and greater understanding as we trust and obey our great shepherd. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's easy to read an account like this and just think that 
Um, wow, that's cool. That's theatrics, and that's, that just simply points to uh, you know how, how how powerful Jesus is. But but Lord, it's more than that. It's 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 pointing to the fact that you have compassion and the power to meet the needs that you ha- that we that you see in your people. That we are just like lost sheep without our shepherd. So Lord, as we um, encounter you and as we are used by you to do the work of your kingdom may we have eyes to see that you are our great shepherd that we are uh, led by a great king a compassionate leader and teacher may we have softened hearts not like the hardened hearts that we see here in the the end of the story but when we have softened hearts to to see and to understand what you're revealing about yourself and your ways And may we gladly enter into the problems that you create for us. May we gladly enter into the confusion and the perplexity that that often leads to so that we can witness your provision for us and for your people as your gospel advances to the ends of the earth. May we be used by you. May your power flow through us as we faithfully obey because there's no other way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm keeping chocolate.